Today on CityCast Boise, we're dissecting the big stories of the week. Boise continues to stand against censorship, and Republicans are realizing that they should probably keep tabs on maternal deaths. Plus, we have recommendations for what you should do this weekend. It's Friday, January 19th. I'm Nick Kwa, and this is what Boise is talking about. Hey, Blake, happy end of the week. Are you are you frozen yet? Are you trapped beneath a layer of ice? How's it going for you? I kind of am. We, I mean, winter took its time to get here, but we are really, we're in the throes of it now. I feel like it's it's lost, <laughs> it's, lost its novelty. Uh, it's losing its solidity and everything's becoming slushy. So it's great. I couldn't be happier. Yeah. Yeah, the novelty thing. I love snow, but we had all 48 hours of it. So whatever. Yeah. Um, I love snow while it's falling. And then I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, let's get into our first story, which is more of an update than a full thing that we can sink our teeth into. So this is about the library bill that's sort of popping back up again. Um, Last Friday, we heard from Boise State Public Radio reporter Jimmy Dawson uh, about how the Idaho House is trying to bring back a slightly modified version of their library bill, which is a book ban by... Any other name, much like any other rose. Uh, this, uh, not that you would get that because you would ban that book. Um, this one would prohibit public and school libraries from making, uh, quote, material harmful to minors uh, available to children under 18. Part of a long-standing super dumb culture war frontier. What's the latest update here? Is the bill still moving forward? It was uh, through Monday, uh, all through Thursday, midday, and then uh, suddenly it kind of got pulled uh, on Thursday afternoon. It went forward to the House, um, and then uh, its sponsor pulled it and is essentially, he said, working on um, some sort of compromise bill. We don't know much about this yet. The bill's sponsor, original sponsor, Jaron Crane, Republican of of Nampa, is working with another Republican, Jeff Schroeder, uh, out of Mountain Home, who's actually on the Senate side. And... We've actually had uh, Schroeder on on the show before to talk about one Mountain Home and also two extremism and generally he went uh, he went off on Idaho Freedom Foundation and so that was fun. But they are apparently working on this kind of compromise bill together that uh, essentially would well we don't know essentially what it's going to do. But House Bill three eighty four, which a lot of people really organized around um, and a lot of people came out and testified against, is being put back on the shelf so to speak, and so. We're not totally sure what it's going to look like moving forward, but at least that one is out of the way. So, mm-hmm. so do we know anything about what you know might happen next, and specifically if other players will be involved at this time? Right. So, the original sponsor Crane uh, said that he is working with the Idaho Library Association on this one, and this is new. This is a new player in this situation. Yeah, or at least that they have been consulted. That that part's a little unclear right now. The Idaho Library Association, uh, as you can imagine, was very was very opposed to House Bill 384. They were really opposed to the library bill last year as well, uh, which went through and was eventually vetoed by Governor Little at the last minute because there's a $2,500 lawsuit uh, slapped mm-hmm. onto any sort of challenge to a book. Which just like would bring pure chaos into the yeah, situation. Yeah, it would. And so that was cut, you know, down to 250. Uh, so 10% of that this time around. But of course, the Idaho Library Association uh, is predictably uh, against censorship in, in this and any most forms, at least uh, that I know of. And so they were opposed to it. And 
apparently, according to uh, Laura Guido from the Idaho Press, in her article about this, this is just, you know, end of day Thursday that we know about this. She said, uh, quoted Crane as saying that the Idaho Library Association is, quote unquote, neutral uh, on this new bill, on this compromise. So, you know, we can expect that maybe it's a bit of an improvement in that regard. We just don't know the like exact machinations of how it's going to work. Got it. I mean, we're still up in here. It's still very, it seems like we're very early in this particular stage of the right. story. Um, okay, so I guess we'll be uh, watching to see what this compromise bill might be. Uh, shout out to Jimmy and um, Laura at Adam Press, uh, who's keeping us uh, all updated on the TikTok of the Capitol. Um, if you're interested, obviously, like follow up uh, in both of their voices, Tape Powder Radio on one hand, I don't press on the other, just keep the story going. Uh, but let's step back for a minute because Boise, I mean, I think reasonable people hate this kind of censorship because this is censorship. Uh, and they at least, you know, um, lots of folks from Boise showed up in big numbers earlier this week to protest at a Capitol, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and I remember, you know, shout out to the lit room over at the Garden City. Uh, I've been following a lot of their like calls to strike and calls to action um, mm-hmm. on their social media accounts. That is a dynamic at play here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's always difficult to know when you're in Boise kind of what the actual lay of the land of what people think really is. Because the people that you get to come testify at the Capitol, it's pretty accurate to say that, one, they're just not a representative sample of, you know, everybody across the state. Um, It's much easier for for people who live in Boise to get off work or just, like, stop by the Capitol, uh, whatever it is, to be able to testify. However... Um, yeah, on Sunday, this previous Sunday, uh, hundreds of people showed up at the Capitol uh, for a protest in the middle of, a, of the snowstorm and, you know, talked about this and, and kind of rallied together, did some book exchanges, which was really cool. And again, shout out to The Lit Room, um, who's, you know, a very new book sh- bookstore opened up in Garden City. They're right across from Push and Poor. And they have been working really hard on this. And I'm personally very grateful uh, for, for all of their work in many ways. Plus, you know, this is going to if this were to go through, kind of in no matter no matter what form, it's going to affect you know the entire Boise Boise Public Library system, which is the largest in the state, and that affects a lot of people, and it affects a lot you know specifically one of the biggest parts of this of this bill. So we'll we'll see what changes, but one of the biggest parts is that it kind of includes in the obscenity uh, terms any sort of homosexuality at all. Uh, so it could be literally just like a queer couple holding hands right. in a book, like an illustrated book of some sort or something like that. But also one of the things that I think about with this that I think it's important not to lose sight of is um, this also can include like situations of abuse that a lot of people don't realize uh it's very common for people not to really realize that uh they're in a bad situation until they read or learn about it in some other Mm -hmm. form like literature and and you kind of realize like oh this should not be happening to me and that kind of thing so a lot of this is sex education material Mm -hmm. a lot of it is anything related to queerness and transness in general so yeah, we'll we'll see what's going on, but it's it's a pretty pretty fair bet to say that a lot of Boise just does not stand for this. Right. So I would say that this is overreach. Some yeah. would say that this is a slippery slope. Well, and I mean, it's a slippery slope that we've already been on for several years. Absolutely, too. and it'll just keep getting a steeper incline. I just want to go back to something that she also mentioned, and you mentioned earlier, like as much as yes, the sort of the nature of the dynamic of who can 
protest at the Capitol like quickly and in mm -hmm. large numbers. Like the the asymmetry of how this might be representative of like the general feeling of the public, it works the other way too. Like yeah, absolutely. I, I I don't think necessarily that most people feel strongly about this book ban outside of a small group of relatively small group of extreme thinkers, and that mm -hmm. is pretty much a dynamic that has been pushed and pulled in, in idol politics for quite some time now. Absolutely. So I just want to flag that. All right, like tell me about these, the story that you've been tracking. So um, this week, the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a case originating from, I believe, Southern Oregon, Grants Pass. Yeah. That could affect how cities affect uh, how cities address homelessness. Like walk me through what the story is. Okay, yeah. So I wrote about this a little bit, a little while ago, so we can link to this. But the Supreme Court has taken up Johnson versus the city of Grants Pass, uh, which is a pretty small town in Oregon. But they, uh, the Ninth Circuit, which covers, you know, a lot of the Western U.S., said that the city of Grants Pass had violated uh, unhoused people's Eighth Amendment uh, by imposing civil fines uh, for people using, essentially for like uh, camping in, in public spaces. But particularly what this was for is like literally using a blanket or a pillow or, you know, a cardboard box, any any material. And so... This was uh, originated from a couple of unhoused folks uh, in Grants Pass who said, wow, can't believe I just got a civil fine for trying to have a blanket when I'm sleeping outside. And so this I want to specifically this is civil, the civil case. So the reason that I really wanted to talk about this in Boise is because this case essentially builds on a case out of Boise, which is called Martin v. Boise. And this was a really big one because this group of unhoused folks in Boise came forward and uh, argued that their Eighth Amendment rights were being violated by the city for being criminally prosecuted uh, for sleeping outside on public property without any alternative shelter being available. So, you know, right. any any homelessness shelter didn't have space. And so that's why they were sleeping outside. Uh, and they said that while that like in that specific situation where there's no alternative space, uh, you should not be criminally prosecuted for sleeping outside. Right. Quite literally a, between a rock and a hard place in the sense of there is no services and literally the other side is criminalization. Yeah. And so the city of Boise said, uh, essentially, no, we, we think that we should be able to do that. Um, and so it went up to the Ninth Circuit and they 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 agreed with the unhoused folks and said, you know, uh, that is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And so that has stood for several years and it has had a really interesting ripple effect because this little case out of little old Boise uh, affects, you know, the homelessness populations and the uh, homelessness advocacy groups in cities like Californian cities and Portland and Seattle and whatnot. And of course, there's so much rhetoric about about all of that. But so a lot of these states have kind of come together and pushed against the city, the Martin v. Boise case, saying that mm -hmm. this has just completely removed our ability to uh, kind of keep the streets quote unquote clean. Well, such a such a coded veiled veiled descriptor. It is. Um, and so they've said that, you know, there's there's a there's so many people kind of on that side on so many. They have so many different takes, but they've kind of fallen into the same same group there. Same camp, you could say, mm -hmm. um, who say that they need more authority to be able to um, whether you want to say help or uh, really, you know, remove uh, and further criminalize being homeless. Um, and so the Supreme Court has decided to take this up because the city of Johnson, the case of Johnson v. City of Grants Pass is essentially built off of this Boise case, mm -hmm. built off of Martin v. Boise. And um, as many folks know, the Supreme Court has changed a lot in the last few years. Um, 
the last time the city the Supreme Court rejected the case uh, in 2019 and said you know the Ninth Circuit Court uh, decision is going to stand city of Boise you don't have you don't have an appeal in this case this uh, we're, we're gonna let that stand five years since a lot has changed um, and so a lot of city big cities on the west coast are throwing their weight behind this mm. um, and you know because the Supreme Court agreed to take up this case, that is usually a signal that they do want to, you know, weigh in on it. They right. do want to say, they do want to oppose what the lower court said in in some way. I, I don't know. It, this could be a total walk back of Martin v. Boise. They could totally overturn that. Um, or it could just apply to civil fines instead of criminal. They could draw the line there. We don't really know yet. And so that's something that we're definitely going to be paying attention to. And it'll be interesting to see how the city of Boise reacts. One interesting note, too, is that even though Grants Pass is in Oregon, the legislature has since, in 2021, uh, they made it illegal for uh, cities to impose any sort of civil or criminal penalties mm -hmm. on people who are sleeping outside when there was no no alternative shelter. So this this case actually won't have any bearing on Oregon, mm -hmm. um, or I guess it'll back that back their legislation up, but it certainly will affect Boise. Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of sort of like the, the scarcity of services and shelters provided in general, like this ties back to uh, an episode that we published earlier this week where we brought on uh, Idaho, State, uh, Idaho Statesman reporter Rachel Spachek uh, to talk a little bit about this uh, homelessness solution policy or strategy that we know is implemented to some, to quite a bit of success, uh, and yeah. the question whether it can actually be imported to Boise. So, uh, I, you know, the folks who are interested in that should listen to the episode, but could you give me like the quick TLDR of like what, what exactly was in that conversation? Yeah. So essentially the Nevada, uh, this little city in Nevada, it's about the same size as Boise. So that always kind of, you know, makes you think what we could learn from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but essentially the city decided to build a 600 bed tent uh, and then multiple like uh, set off uh, on their own um, little sleeping areas using federal COVID emergency funds to do this. And uh, it did help drastically lower uh, the people who were living on the street, uh, living uh, unhoused. And obviously this is a temporary solution that mm -hmm. Reno was able to use, but something like that, you know, could be helpful for Boise. Um, and it's interesting, actually, I remember an old conversation that um, we had on CityCast Boise with the Interfaith uh, Sanctuary Director, Jody Peterson Steigers, who talked about last winter, they kind of corralled, they got their hands on like this big military hospital grade, mm -hmm. like tent uh, that they were able to temporarily house people in uh, during the winter. So we've done a tiny, tiny version of that, but within the nonprofit sphere rather than the actual city sphere. So yeah, Boise's not going to be doing that, but um, that is one, one option that another city about our size has, has looked to. So earlier this week, Idaho House Majority Leader Megan Blanksma, a Republican, introduced legislation to the HHWC, the House Health and Welfare Committee, um, that would you basically, you know, revive or or revive the effort to have a committee that discusses, analyzes, interprets, um, and studies like maternity mortality data. Uh, yeah. deaths due to pre pregnancy for right. any multitude of reasons. Um, and this is interesting because uh, we're the only state at this point that does not have such a committee that produces a report um, around maternity mortality. Um, and the reason we don't have one is because I think the the legislation that like powers the existence of this committee was just lapsed into non-existence last year uh, with, with seemingly little movement to revive it until this week. Uh, of course, this is just the start of the process to get it back up and running. 
Uh, and I should note that Blanksma has said that the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare continues to collect uh, maternal mortality data, despite loss, loss of the committee. But, um, you know, as they say, uh, you are what you measure, and you can only fix yep. what you measure, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you can only fix what you're studying. So that is, this is something that is uh, I find very encouraging, uh, largely given the broader context of, like, you know, reproductive health in Idaho, um, yeah. which is, I don't know, we're, we're currently in, it feels like we're in like deep, deep crisis mode. Would, would you sort of share that assessment? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, we totally are. Um, I did a, did a dive into just trying to sort out all of my own thoughts. I had a friend who was asking me about like, okay, so what exactly is the situation with Idaho's abortion bans right now? I looked into that and tried to sort out through all of the all of the lawsuits and all of the cases uh, just to kind of get a clear view going into the rest of the year. Obviously, this is going to be just a hectic political year, so it's helpful to have some clarity. Um, and so I wrote an article about where Idaho's abortion bans are right now that's uh, available online. So please check that out. And then we'll have this kind of part two of it coming out um, on Monday. Um, but yeah, the we we lost the maternal mortality review committee in the same year that the strictest abortion ban in the nation mm -hmm. went into effect in Idaho and and that i mean really that speaks volumes as to what what the state of reproductive healthcare and conservative politics is all about right now and so i'm at least hopeful that this committee will be coming back Mm -hmm. uh, great that, you know, Department of Health and Welfare is hopefully still looking into this data, but we do need a specific kind of consolidated and public uh, data committee who's willing to be looking into this because we we need to know exactly how these abortion bans are affecting Idahoans. Um, mm -hmm. In We need to have the anecdotes and we also need to have the data to back it up. Right. And to root us a little bit deeper into sort of Boise and, and the Church of LA region, like um, the latest report that was published, I believe it's from 2021, uh, of the 16 deaths that were recorded and studied, almost half was in the Health District 4, which is where Boise resides. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the sort of we are in the middle middle of a very quiet crisis of OBGYNs leaving the state and a yeah. lot of providers yeah. are based uh, here in Treasure Valley. But it's also, I mean, it's important because rural counties also need uh, reproductive healthcare, and so yeah. it's a little bit of a feeling that the reason why it lapsed, like it's hard not to sort of see the lapsing of the committee as a way to kind of obscure or blunt the political like uh, knife of of seeing yeah. the effects of of this uh, uh, of all of this. Um, and so I don't know. It's just it you know sunlight best disinfected. That's like the classic tourism and the cliche there. But really, 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 we need we need that data. Okay, you know, in the spirit of this being uh, kind of the end of the week that we're decompressing, uh, you know, let's try to end this on a, you know, you know, somewhat lighter note. Like, you told me that you are into a sport. Like, tell me, let's, let's kind of kick this, wrap this up with a little bit of like, a, you know, yeah. a, a practical thing, a recommendations corner, we should say. Yeah. What, what's, uh, what can you bring to me today <laughs> to make me feel better about my life? Okay, Nick, my pitch is to get into women's college basketball. Absolutely. Okay, great. If you are ever thinking about getting into women's college basketball, you need to do it right now. Because women's basketball, just like large, uh, just across the board professionally and collegiately, and even on the high school level, um, is seeing just this huge, uh, I, I don't know, it's just seeing such a surge uh, in popularity and also in the sport itself, mm -hmm. uh, how it's being played. And this kind of is conju in conjunction with the name, image, and likeness deal, NIL, mm -hmm. which um, 
allows you know student athletes who are working extremely hard to uh, to get some compensation. Share in that profit. Yeah. Share in that in that value. Yeah. Um, and you know we there are just so so many incredible college teams across the country. Uh, Boise State's women's college basketball team is actually mm-hmm. pretty good this year. They've got a pretty solid record. Um, but I'm excited. The reason that I thought about talking this is because I'm heading out of town. I would love to go to some some warmer areas right now, um, <laughs> but instead I'm going to Salt Lake. Um, so, but that it's fine. Uh, but I'm going down to Salt Lake to watch uh, the University of Utah, who is a top twenty team and would certainly be a top ten team if mm-hmm. they hadn't lost their second leading scorer. Um, but they do still have Alyssa Peely, who is. One of the best play- post players in the nation. She is incredible. Uh, she's so much fun to watch. She's so dynamic. Uh, she's like barely six feet tall, but she's so she's she's so incredible to watch. Yeah, but they are playing against uh, the USC Trojans. So SoCal is coming up, and they are led by one of one of the reasons that co- women's college basketball is so interesting right now is because there's this cadre of freshmen across the across the country who are just incredible. I mean, these are like, you are really watching like the next huge names in women's Mm -hmm. basketball, not Mm -hmm. just college, for the rest of their lives. Like we're all going to be talking about them if you follow basketball at all. There's this huge group of freshmen who are coming in, uh, largely led by USC's Juju Watkins, who I think that they're ranked, I don't remember what they're ranked now because they actually just last week beat UCLA, who is one of, who is ranked second and they were the, uh, one of the last two undefeated teams uh, mm-hmm. in the nation. And so these two are going to be going head to head. They're in the Pac-12. They're the last. Uh, this is the last year of the Pac-12, but it's in conference play. Um, there's a really cool uh, Boise tie-in, which is that Boise High uh, has a player. Uh, I believe it's Avery Howell is her name. And she actually just signed USC. So she's going oh. to be going there next year and joining this team that is currently, I think, ranked in the top five, certainly the top 10. Yeah, that that's my plug. That's one of the ways that I'm getting through the winter. How did you get into, you, well, women's basketball in general, but like Utah State in specific? <laughs> I wanted to see Utah play. Uh, I wanted to see them play Colorado because like two West teams, like that's fun. Uh, but I also have a sister who lives down in Utah in Ogden. Mm-hmm. And so like it's all kind of in the same area. Listen, bring bring us that Amtrak line. I, I, <laughs> I know. Gonna drag it up with I want to go to Salt Lake. I've not been to Salt Lake myself personally before. Yeah. I'm really you haven't been at all. I have not. I'm just just the airport. You know, I would I would try to make the drive to watch a jazz play or something, but like no. Yeah. I, yeah. So we're so Maybe isolated. you need to watch the U- University of Utah play. I mean they're they're Absolutely. Really good. I'll make it a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. So that's what I'm doing. Uh and that's I think you know, I, I needed to turn to something other than movies to entertain me through the winter. So this is what I found. <laughs> but yeah. What about you? How are, how are you getting through? Well, you know, I, I'm the sort of the master of of, recre- of just, you know, consuming media as recreation, just to mm. completely ignore everything that's cold and dark outside. Um, yeah. You know, it, <laughs> I've been watching the the, uh, the Australian Open. Uh, I tend to only watch the, the wins bracket. But I'll give I'll give two specific recommendations uh, for this week. Uh, one is, um, you know, let's give a shout out to the flicks. I saw American Fiction last weekend, uh, which okay. is Court Jefferson's uh, adaptation of Erasure, which is a novel. Um, at the, the, it's a it's got a lot of Oscar buzz around it, um, and that it's so the premise of the, of the movie is a, a black writer out of frustration with the lack of his um, uh, publishing career or mm. publishing success decides to like lean into every sort of um, you know 
black American publishing trope or, or tropes that the, that the book publishing industry loves to push in front of white audiences. He, like, he you know, leans into those tropes, writes a kind of, uh, under a pseudonym, this, this, novel, this novel, this book, and then, uh, you know, gets quite a bit of attention for it. But that mm. is um, actually just 20% of the movie. The, the majority movie is it's a slice of life. It's a family drama of this um, really upper middle class uh, black family. Um, mm. And what happens to their to their adult children and uh, and sort of like dealing with the rest of your life and so it's a really it's a movie that has a lot more on its mind than what seems on the surface and especially that what seems on the premise itself yeah um, and it's um, it's working at a bunch of different levels that I like it probably will you know it, it might at best snap up like best screenplay adapted screenplay maybe not even I think it'll just get aced up by Oppenheimer but it's mm. a lovely movie um, and I it's a it's, I think it's probably one of the best things I've seen from the 2023 release cycle, because I would say, I would have said best I've seen this year, but it's only three weeks into the yeah. year. The second thing I recommend is that if you really want to lean deeper into this cold, frigid environment that we have, there's a new season of True Detective out on HBO <laughs> that, you, that you can access on Max yeah. uh, called Night Country. Uh, and it takes place in Alaska in the long night. Um, stars Jodie Foster mm. and Kelly Race, who's uh, this indigenous uh, actress who was a professional, or maybe might still be a professional boxer. Um, wow. And they're, they're the kind of the uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson of this particular season. And True Detective has a kind of kind of a, a you know a, a troubled kind of reputation for just being very dude bro yeah. um, and just persistent explorations of, of various forms of masculinity. This is very much not that. This very much feels like the polar opposite, and it has um, a really wonderful horror hook to it. So if you're looking mm. for a um, fun way to get scared and feel even more cold, uh, I highly recommend that. And you don't have to leave your house. Yeah, I mean, nothing will make you appreciate the sunshine that we do get uh, more than seeing more darkness on TV. Absolutely so right. I, I, see the, I see the logic, yeah. Well, Blake, thank you for joining me to round out this week. Um, stay unfrozen and uh, have fun uh, in the great state of Utah. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Have a good weekend. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. The show was produced by Evelyn Davitia, Frankie Barnhill, Grant Irving, and Dylan Brogan. Blake Hunter writes our Hey Boise newsletter with editing help from Brian Batts. And our music is by Up Is It Down Is That. Tell your local snowplow to listen to the podcast. See ya.